0: You're listening to a podcast from West Wind Church. For more information, visit our website at westwindchurch.org. What happens when we die? What happens when we die? This this is a question that uh, people throughout the ages, for as long as we have recorded history, have asked. And most cultures around the world have had a belief that life continues beyond the grave, that when we die, we don't just turn to dust and worm food and that's it, but life goes on. Uh, For instance, the ancient Egyptians, they they believed that when they buried somebody and embalmed them, uh, they would continue on in a spiritual body in the underworld, And so they would bury them with furniture and clothes and and their favorite possessions so that they could take them with them into the afterlife. Uh, The ancient Greeks, when someone would die, they would would bury them, uh, first wash their body and then often put a coin in their mouths so that they could pay the ferrymen uh, to take them across the river of death into the underworld where they would continue on. Uh, Of course, in our own age, there's there's been a fascination with near-death experiences, those who have died and gone beyond the grave, and they come back to tell us what it's like, what happens when we die. Well, in our passage this morning, uh, Jesus is going to be interacting with a group of religious leaders that did not believe in life beyond the grave, they, they believe that this life was all we had, and, and when you die, that's it. And uh, so we're going to be looking at this fact that Jesus reveals these resurrection realities. That's the title of this morning's sermon. Uh, we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 20, verses 27 to 40. So go ahead and turn there in your Bibles with me. Uh, And as you're turning there, I just want to remind us of where we're at in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, As as you as a church have been going through the Gospel of Luke, you know that Jesus has been making his way to Jerusalem. Uh, All the time, he's been foretelling he would go to Jerusalem and he would be crucified. And so Jesus has arrived. He's been in the temple. He's been teaching in Luke 20. Uh, last week, Pastor Jason walked through how Jesus encountered the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were, were another religious group of Jewish leaders, and they, they questioned the authority of Jesus. Uh, they tried to trap him in his own words, they wanted to get him convicted and hand him over to the religious authorities. And uh, as they have been, the, the Pharisees have been trying to trap Jesus. What we saw again and again is that every time Jesus silences these religious leaders with his wisdom, with his uh, understanding of the truth. And so now we're going to look at another group this morning, the Sadducees. Uh, The Sadducees were another religious group of leaders among the Jewish people. Uh, And often, actually, the Pharisees and Sadducees did not get along very well. Uh, they, they really were contending for authority and power, and they had different beliefs. Uh, you see, the Sadducees, unlike the Pharisees, did not believe in the supernatural. Uh, they rejected the idea that there were angels. They, they didn't believe that there was a resurrection. You, you might think of the Pharisees as kind of a, a middle-class uh, group of leaders Well, the the Sadducees were the the elites, uh, the the aristocrats of their time. They they had a corner on the high priestly line, who would be the high priest in the temple. And so many of them served as as priest and the high priest. They were the ones who controlled the the selling of animals in the temple. And with that selling of animals uh, came a lucrative business, And so Josephus, the historian of the first century, tells us that the Sadducees were wealthy. They were an elite, small sect of Jewish leaders, and here in our passage, we see that they unite together with the Pharisees. Uh, In their desire to destroy this common enemy, these religious leaders gather together, and they're coming to trap Jesus, uh, to catch him in his words. Now, the, the reason mainly that the Sadducees did not believe in a life to come is because they only believed the first five books of the Old Testament, uh, what's known as the Torah or the Pentateuch, and they rejected the rest of the Old Testament teaching. Uh, they held to Moses wrote the first five, and since we don't see resurrection there, uh, we don't believe it at all. And of course, if you don't believe in a life to come, in a resurrection from the dead, you try to get your best life now. Uh, You try to live it up here. And that's exactly what the Sadducees were doing. So now that we've considered who these Sadducees are, let's turn to our passage, starting in verse 27, and hear this question really a a riddle that the Sadducees bring to Jesus, trying to trap him in his own words. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother's. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, this is really their their punchline. You can almost hear them snickering as they ask this final question to Jesus. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will this woman be? For the seven hatter as a wife. And so, as these Sadducees come to Jesus, they're they're trying to pose this conundrum, this riddle that they've probably used very frequently with the Pharisees. Uh, This is probably a common debate where they've engaged talking about these matters, and, and they think this really seals their case that there is no resurrection. So what they're drawing on is is a law from Deuteronomy called Leveret Marriage. Uh, And and what that meant from Deuteronomy chapter 25 is that just what they say here, if if a a wife loses their spouse, uh, someone in the family, the nearest kinsman, will marry that person to to perpetuate the family line, to protect the widow, to carry on the the family name. Uh, We see this in Ruth and Boaz. And so this law that was given back in Deuteronomy was something that the ancient Israelites cherished and was a gift from the Lord. And yet these Sadducees were thinking, if this law exists and this is true, then how can you practice it in the resurrection? You see, they think Jesus has two answers he can give here. If he says he's married to, uh, she's married to all seven in the resurrection, well, it's this ludicrous, you know, incestuous, strange relationship that goes against the teaching of God's word. Uh, But if Jesus chooses one of the spouses, which one will he choose? And so the, the Sadducees think that they have trapped Jesus here, that this question, you know, you can't have the resurrection and the commandment of Moses, these conflict, and so Jesus is going to give a twofold response uh, in verses 34 to 38. Jesus will give two answers. And first, he'll give a theological answer that is, uh, an understanding about the nature of marriage and the age to come. And then, secondly, he is going to give a scriptural, a biblical answer, taking them to the Torah to show them why they're wrong. And, and so beginning in verse uh, 34, Jesus says this. And Jesus said to them, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of God. Of the resurrection. And so Jesus' first response is to help these religious leaders understand that the the age to come and the age in which we live, there there are some fundamental differences. And one of the key differences is in this relationship of marriage. Uh, You see, most Jewish people in, in their understanding of the resurrection. Uh, they believe that it would very much just be a simple continuation of this life. Uh, In fact, they would bury themselves with certain clothing, thinking those are the clothes you're gonna be resurrected in, Uh, you're gonna have the same relationships, the same structures in uh, the age to come. And and Jesus says something interesting in, in Mark and Matthew, the parallel passages. He says, Sadducees, you're surely wrong because you don't understand the power of God, nor the scriptures. And what they don't get is that the power of God in the age to come is going to renovate many things. It's going to escalate and find fulfillment in some of these earthly, temporary realities we experience now. You see, marriage is meant to be a picture of a greater reality. It's kind of a funny topic here on, on Valentine's Day to talk about the fact that there's going to be no marriage in heaven, and many of us are, are saddened by that thought. Uh, Tris and I often joke that in heaven, we hope the Lord will let us be neighbors by each other. Uh, I tell her all the time, I'm going to be over at her house because I know she's going to have a much bigger place than me. It's going to be better, and yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, But this is a sobering reality, uh, but it's meant to be something that lifts our eyes to a greater reality, the fulfillment of this temporary gift of marriage. See, marriage has been given and created for many good purposes, Uh, companionship, uh, pleasure, enjoyment, procreation, Uh, but ultimately it's meant to be a picture of our union with Christ. It's a, it's a picture of Christ and the church and, and where we're heading as a new humanity. Uh, and one of the things Jesus says is there won't be marriage in heaven because there won't be the need to procreate. You see that in verse 36, we will never die. And so if, if we don't need to uh, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with offspring, uh, Jesus is saying there doesn't need to be marriage. As one commentator put it, where there are no burials, there is no need for weddings. Again, somewhat of a challenging uh, teaching, and yet we're going to see that it's, it's meant for our good. Uh, Jesus says that there's no death in the age to come, that it's unlike this age because we won't die. And notice he says we'll be uh, equal to or like the angels. Now, it's, it's really important to understand we are not going to be angels, right? I hope you all know that we're not going to have wings and harps and sit on clouds. Uh, the resurrection is a bodily, physical resurrection. Uh, you think about Jesus being raised from the grave and how his disciples recognized him. They touched him. He ate with them. And so likely in the resurrection, we will continue on as ourselves physically. We will recognize one one another. And and what an amazing thing it will be in the age to come when we are truly, fully, freely in the presence of God and we get to see and and delight and be in one another's company. And so I want us to think about just a few points of application here uh, when we consider that marriage is temporary and not eternal. And, and one is that marriage is this beautiful gift from God. All the things I mentioned companionship, friendship, pleasure, joy, uh, intimacy these are incredible gifts from the Lord. But they're meant to be gifts that we receive and enjoy, and, and they make ter- it makes a terrible God. Marriage makes a wonderful gift, but a terrible God. And what I mean by that is if if we try to get from our spouse or our children or our family what only we are intended to receive from God, uh, we will be sorely disappointed and really miss the, the meaning of marriage. Marriage is this foretaste of what is to come and our union with the living God. And so our lives should not be centered around our family, our life should not be solely focused on here and now and, and how to make it perfect and protected, but rather it's a, it's a gift to receive to help point us heavenward and to that day of resurrection. The Sadducees were wrong about their question because they didn't understand the power of God, that He's going to fundamentally transform uh, this age from the next. And so Jesus reveals the reality of the resurrection theologically, but now he's going to reveal it uh, scripturally from the the Torah. And so look in verse 37 and 38. But that the dead are raised, Jesus goes on to say, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, where he calls him, I'm sorry, I'm going to start over, But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. And so now Jesus basically is opening up the Bible with the Sadducees. He's saying, hey, you don't think the Torah teaches resurrection? Let's go back and take a look. And what he's going to tell them is you don't know your scriptures well enough. So, so he goes back to this story of the burning bush, right? This is before they have uh, Bible references and chapters and all that. And so he's saying, hey, remember the story about the bush. That is in Exodus 3. And, and he's quoting Exodus 3, verse 6, where if you remember, God appears to Moses in a burning bush and he, he says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Jesus is just simply noting, making kind of a a grammarian statement here, if you will, for those of you who like grammar. He's saying, notice, Jesus doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but I am the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Yes, Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these, these men are gone and dead, And yet, I am currently their God. They are living in some fashion. They will one day be with me on the earth. And this notion that life continues beyond the grave uh, is not just something that Jesus is doing a word, you know, semantic trick here. Uh, Abraham himself believed that he would continue beyond the grave. If you remember that story Uh, In Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham had to go take his son Isaac and offer him on on the altar as a sacrifice, Uh, he, he, he says this in Hebrews 11. It says, "'By faith, when Abraham was tested, he offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, "'Through Isaac shall your offspring be named.'" he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And so we don't have time to get into the story here, but what I want to point out is Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac because he so believed in God's promise that he would have an inheritance through his son that God must be able and willing to raise him from the dead. And so Abraham is counting on the faithful promises of God, and he's believing that God has the power to raise the dead. Here's evidence of a belief in the resurrection in Genesis. A little bit earlier in Hebrews, we see this was Abraham's mindset. Even though he went out from his home country and God gave him a promised land, Abraham wasn't just putting his hope in a city in Israel. Listen to what Hebrews eleven thirteen 13 says. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And so you see that Abraham himself Uh, Based on the promises God made him in this covenant relationship, Abraham believed that not only would God uh, be his God forever, but that at some point there would be this future resurrection where God would fulfill his promises, not just in an earthly city, but in an, an eternal, everlasting city where he would be with God. And all through the Old Testament, there are hints of this resurrection reality, Uh, One of the the oldest stories we have is from the book of Job. And, And listen to what Job says in the midst of his great suffering. He says, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet in my body I will see God. All right, so after my body has decayed, in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. And so here's a a picture, a reality, a a snapshot of Job's belief in this future resurrection. Even if I die from this disease and sickness, I'm gonna see my Redeemer face to face. There are many more passages we could go. And and yes, it's true that the doctrine of, uh, uh, the teaching of uh, resurrection is not, fully fleshed out in the Old Testament, uh, it is present. Maybe the clearest picture we have is from Daniel chapter 12, verse two. Daniel writes, those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And so Jesus, he goes to the Torah Because that's where the Sadducees had their struggle. Those are the books they believed. And and he says, Sadducees, you don't understand the scriptures that you're claiming authority on. Because in the Torah, in the the second book of God's word, there is resurrection. Abraham believed this reality. And so Jesus' twofold answer, it, it has a profound effect. It's the effect that he's had on every other religious group that's come to trap him and question him. And the Sadducees are silenced. And we see that in verses 39 to 40. It says, some of the scribes answered him, teacher, you've spoken well. Uh, these scribes are likely the, the Pharisees, right, that believe in the resurrection. And, and now, you know, even though they were united against Jesus trying to trap him, They're kind of siding with Jesus and saying, yes, that's a great answer. I wish we would have thought of that. Uh, Matthew tells us that the crowds are astonished. But notice the Sadducees in verse 40. They no longer dared to ask him any questions. And so Luke portrays Jesus here, this teacher in the temple, as they've tried to trap him again and again he is one unmatched in wisdom. Uh, he is unparalleled in his understanding of the truth and unfolding the scriptures and understanding the realities of the age to come. And of course, we know the Sadducees were not really after answers, right? In their skepticism, they're just trying to trip Jesus up. But no matter how hard they try again and again, they fail. Now, we know that Jesus not only reveals the reality of the resurrection from the Old Testament, but his own life and his own teaching uh, was full of pointing toward this, right? You think of the story uh, in John chapter 11 where Lazarus, one loved by Jesus, dies. He's in the grave for four days, and he goes to visit. And listen to what Martha says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died, but even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so Jesus makes this amazing claim, I am the resurrection. Of course, we know in Luke, three times Jesus has predicted that he'll go into the city. He'll be crucified and die. But, but he promises and predicts that he'll rise again from the dead. But before he does, he has to die. And though the the religious leaders are silenced here in Luke chapter 20, again and again on this kind of a a foreshadow of the courtroom coming, uh, these Sadducees now humiliated, these Pharisees now uh, demolished by the wisdom of Jesus are infuriated. And they're full of anger and hatred, and they won't stop until they shut Jesus up. And so in the cover of darkness, we know in Luke, uh, at the betrayal of the hands of one of Jesus's own followers, these religious leaders finally get Jesus caught. And they bring him before a mockery court in the night and they condemn him. The Roman officials condemn him to death through crucifixion. And as Jesus hangs on the cross, dying, there's no doubt that the enemies of him, these religious leaders controlled by the powers of darkness, they think that finally we have defeated him. And yet it was through the cross itself where Jesus paid for our sin debt, that he actually overcame his enemies and conquered sin and death and the powers of darkness. And he died. The the blameless, perfect son of God who embodied perfect wisdom and, and beauty and truth, he died for you and for me. But the grave could not hold him. The grave could not keep him. Having satisfied the wrath and judgment of God, he rose again on the third day victorious. And because he has risen, those who are in him too will experience a resurrection. He is the first fruits of the resurrection from the dead. And that means that we all will follow in his steps. Listen to what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 about the reality of this victory, the reality of this resurrection. He says, "'I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed.'" In a moment, in a twinkling of the eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What a glorious, amazing hope we have as followers of Jesus. In this age, our bodies decay, we get sick, and every one of us is going to go to the grave. Just this week, I heard of two uh, people I know, two loved ones who died, and another one critical facing death in the hospital. And so what an amazing reality Jesus brings us this morning Our God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. This is good news. This is essential to our gospel message. This this, uh, person, Paul, we heard about, right, that that was totally transformed, this is the message he preached going city to city, proclaiming there's a future resurrection from the dead. Uh, This is essential to what it means to be a Christian, To believe this hope, God has promised us new bodies and a new heavens and new earth where there will be indescribable joy, life as He intended it, a heavenly country free from suffering and the sin that clings so easily to us, a kingdom made by God's own hands where King Jesus will rule and reign in perfect righteousness and justice. And I like how John Piper points out here that age to come is not just an improvement over the worst things of this age, right? Sickness, suffering, death, difficulty, all gone. But it's not just those things. Every best thing in this life will be even better in the age to come. Everything that is good and pleasurable and beautiful in this life points us to the reality that will be fulfilled in that age. So we may not have marriage, but the purposes of marriage, companionship, pleasure, protection, all of these are meant to be, that are are a picture of our relationship and hope with God will be fulfilled. All of these are a shadow, but... In that place with our resurrection bodies in a new heavens and new earth, we will experience the substance. And even the best gifts of this life will pale in comparison to being with our God and seeing Him with our own eyes. In the age to come, we'll experience companionship beyond comparison. We'll have unparalleled pleasures forevermore in the presence of God. We'll have perpetual protection and all of these things will be in union with our Lord and God, Jesus Christ. This is good news this morning, that there is a resurrection. And Jesus not only reveals as the teacher in the temple that there is resurrection taught in the Bible, but he is the resurrection and the life. And he guarantees that all of those who belong to him by faith will follow suit in a resurrection. And so I wonder this morning does that describe you? Will you experience this resurrection reality and this union with God? You see Jesus makes it clear in our passage, if you look back in verse 35, that not all will experience this resurrection unto righteousness. In verse 35, Jesus says it's those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead. Jesus is really clear here. Not all are worthy to be sons of God, to be sons of the resurrection. Not all will enter into that new heavens and new earth. And so how can we be made worthy? You see, every other religion, every other teaching that believes in a life after death says the way you get worthy is by your own works. If you live a good enough life in this age, If your good deeds outweigh your bad. If your karma comes back and it all works out in the end and you experience salvation. But as we've been looking at Luke, we know clearly, those who are worthy are not those who make themselves worthy. But they're those who come to the only one who is worthy, to the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrection and the life, who says, though you're sinful, and, and deserve God's judgment, I have come to lay my life down for you. I have come to die and shed my blood on the cross for your sins so that if you come to me and believe in me, I'll raise you up on the last day. And so if that describes you this morning, if you're someone who is trying to make your worth with God through your own achievements and works, would you hear the voice of Jesus this morning saying, come to me, I'm the resurrection and the life. Repent of your sins, put your trust in me and what I did for you, and I'll raise you up. And brothers and sisters, Christian, this morning, as we consider the reality of the resurrection, I think we have to ask ourselves this question. Are are you living like a son or daughter of the resurrection? Or are you living your life more like a Sadducee? A Sadducee that says, this life is all there is. Yeah, you know, I, I might believe in that on paper, but if you look at your pocketbook, if you look at your relationships, if you look at the way you spend your time, are you living like you're going to be resurrected from the dead? The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 Uh, he unpacks the reality of the resurrection and he goes on to say, if if only in this life we have hope, we are to be pitied above all people. In other words, if there is no resurrection, Christians should be living in such a way that unbelievers look at us and look at our lives and say, oh, I pity that person. I, I pity them because they're living for the good of others. They're sacrificing and doing things that don't make sense because I'm trying to get a bigger whatever, you know, better job, a bigger home, more comfortable place. And Paul says he lives in light of the resurrection in such a way he should be pitied. He goes on to say that he's in danger every day. So we hear about this story of Paul's conversion. What did he do when he met the resurrected Jesus? He went city to city, sometimes being stoned and dragged and left for dead, sometimes being imprisoned. But he's saying, what does it matter? My ambition is to preach Christ because my hope is in the resurrection. And Paul's saying, if there isn't a resurrection, let us eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. But clearly, as we've seen, brothers and sisters, this morning, There is a resurrection. This is our hope as believers that one day we'll be raised up, we will be with the Lord forever. And this glorious hope should be revealed in the way we handle our time, our money, our relationships, everything God's entrusted to us. Within 80 years or less, Every one of us in this room, everyone listening at home, uh, is going to be in the grave. We won't be here. For some of us, that time is much shorter. Uh, For all of us, we don't know how much time we have. And so the reality of the resurrection should move and motivate us to live in light of it, to live lives that glorify our God and Savior, Paul says to stop sinning, to wake up, to turn from it because you're gonna be face to face with God. And, And there is a resurrection not only of the righteous unto eternal life but a resurrection of the wicked as well. And for those who don't come to Jesus and trust in him, they will be separated from him for all eternity away from all that is good and beautiful and loving. And so Jesus reminds us this morning of these resurrection realities. He challenges us to to live for the treasure that will endure forever. And so brothers and sisters, we don't have to worry or wonder what happens when we die. We know because Jesus went to the grave for us and he rose again, he conquered death and we likewise will follow suit. Our God is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living. Let's pray. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, we give you praise that you have come and you have conquered sin and death. Lord, by giving yourself on the cross, by shedding your blood for us, We praise you that through your sacrifice, we have been washed and cleansed, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ, and we praise you for the hope of the resurrection. Lord, this life is full of brokenness, suffering, sickness, death, and so we praise you, Jesus, that one day we will be clothed in immortality. Lord, we pray that you would help us live lives in light of the resurrection. Lord, I don't know what everyone here this morning, uh, what, what ways they might live differently or respond to you in light of this great hope. Lord, would you help each of us to weigh this reality and to ask ourselves, which age are we living for? And would you make the reality of the resurrection so real, so tangible to us, Lord, that we count everything as loss compared to the greatness of knowing you and living for you. We pray all this in Jesus' great name.